from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. On the evening of September 13, 1983, beauty school owner Delbert Baker, known to his friends and customers as Mr. Dell, was found dead in the back room of his school in Auburndale, Florida. He had been shot, his throat was slashed, and the place was covered in blood. Witnesses gave police the names of a couple of locals whom they had seen with Mr. Dell that evening, but the case eventually went cold. A few months later, a man named David Luna Falcon told police that an acquaintance, Juan Melendez, had allegedly bragged about committing the murder with two accomplices. One of them, a man named John Berrien, admitted to police that he had been the accessory after the fact, giving him the vantage point to name the other accomplice, and Juan Melendez as well. Law enforcement caught up with Juan in Pennsylvania, extradited him to Florida, and charged him with first-degree murder. At trial, David Falcon and John Berrien testified that Juan shot Mr. Dell and stole a watch, a gold bracelet, four diamond rings, and $50 in cash before fleeing the scene. When one of the original suspects who had been seen with Mr. Dell that night was called by the defense at trial, he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights not to testify. Clearly, he had nothing important to add, but this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Gilbert King, and I'm filling in for Jason Flom. And today, we have a case out of Polk County, Florida, where I've spent like so much time doing research for the last like four or five years, researching other cases. And so I'm very familiar with that prosecutor's office, as well as some of the judges in that area. And these are the very same folks that sent Juan Melendez to death row. They kept him there for over 17 years. So this is in a state, you know, Florida, for the last 102 executions has exonerated 30 people from death row. So just doing the math on that, 
Florida has admitted to condemning one innocent person at least every fifth time that they seek the death penalty. And, you know, we're just so glad that our guest today survived. And he's here with us now, Juan Melendez. Welcome, Juan. Thank you for having me. Juan, thanks so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. And and joining us is also Juan's habeas attorney, who at the time was with Florida's Office of the Capital Collateral Representative. And she eventually went on to private practice and she co-founded the National Habeas Institute. Linda McDermott. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Now, I became familiar with Polk County when I was digging into a really troubling case for my podcast, Bone Valley. Uh, This is the story where myself and co-host Kelsey Decker and I, we covered the wrongful conviction of Leo Schofield. And, uh, you know, we continue, obviously, to hope for justice there. Uh, Leo's prosecutor, John Aguero, rose up in the ranks with Juan's prosecutor, Hardy Pickard. And by the end of this interview, I think that our audience is going to get a glimpse of what I've seen. But before we get to that, you know, Juan, can you just tell us about your life before you ever even knew who Hardy Pickard was? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but I was raised in the island of Puerto Rico. They took it back when I was just a little kid. But when I went to uh, to Florida, I went in 1970. It's still segregation. Blacks in one side, whites in another side. And I had the biggest Afro in town. So you know where they're going to put me, in the black side. And I loved it. I loved every bit of it. So I was happy. My work was mostly picking fruit. The grapefruits, the tangerines, the orange, all citrus fruit. So that's what I used to do. Mostly pick fruit, migrate from Florida to the state of Pennsylvania and do some more, get the apples and the peaches and stuff. Now, Juan, the victim in this case, Delbert Baker, he was known to many of his customers and friends as Mr. Dell. He owned uh, a cosmetology school in Auburndale, Florida, which is right in Polk County. Juan, have you ever been to Auburndale? Ever ever run into Dell? I mean, maybe went in there for a haircut or something? Uh, first of all, I have to tell you, I've never been in a, in a cosmetology co- school, you know, where they fix hair and all that stuff. I've never been in one of them. I've seen them on TV. I've been in an album there in the little town where that crime happened. Like I told you, picking fruit. That's it. Never know who that man was. Never, never even hear who he was. And, and Mr. Dell, he had been brutally attacked on the evening of September 13th, 1983. He was discovered in the back room of his hair salon by his own sister. Uh, his you know, throat had been slashed. He'd been shot. Blood obviously was everywhere. Linda, what do we know about the initial investigation? Were there any leads or any obvious motivations into this crime? The investigation started that next day, and it appeared the motivation may be a robbery because jewelry was missing, money was missing from his workplace. It was unclear if there was a motive beyond the robbery, and there were quickly some leads. Now, from what I've read, one of those leads was a man named Vernon James. Is that right? There was an individual named Terry Barber who had told law enforcement he had seen Vernon James with another man named Harold uh, Landrum at Mr. Dell's place of business on the evening of the crime. However, according to law enforcement, they checked with Harold Landrum's employer and he had an alibi for that evening. So the James and Landrum lead didn't get pursued. 
Yeah, what strikes me funny about that is this. You mentioned Landrum's alibi, but not one for Vernon James. And we've seen even like rock solid alibis get completely ignored by police and prosecutors. Let's take Juan, for instance. I had an alibi and I had three people corroborating the alibi. All I know that Benno James was a police informant. I think Landrum was too. So potentially these were both police informants. We know that Vernon James was for sure. And then the police ignored your alibi, but not Landrum's, whose alibi was apparently strong enough to cover for Vernon James as well. And and then the case went cold, allegedly, until $5,000 was offered for information. And this is $5,000 in 1984, you know, February 1984 to be exact. And just like that, the police received a tip. One individual came forward, and his name was David Luna Falcon, and he said that in January of 1984, he and Mr. Melendez had been, you know, drinking and enjoying themselves in a nightclub, and Mr. Melendez had, in very, you know, specific detail, told Mr. Falcon what had happened that night. Falcon had said that someone had taken Mr. Melendez and another individual to the the hair salon, and he mentioned the name John in his original statement to police, but he didn't have any particular names. And that Mr. Melendez and another individual went to Mr. Dell's and robbed him. And from crime scene photos, we know that whoever actually did this had slashed Delbert Baker's throat and shot him in the head. And although Falcon was not clear about who was wielding the knife, he alleged that Juan had claimed to have pulled the trigger. And there was this odd detail in his testimony that before Mr. Melendez allegedly shot Mr. Baker, Mr. Baker had started throwing blood at Mr. Melendez and this other unknown person and begging begging Mr. Melendez to take him to the hospital. And at that point, allegedly, Mr. Melendez said that he shot Mr. Baker. Right. And now, Linda, Juan wasn't even a suspect until he came forward. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, there was no evidence linking Juan at all to this crime. Now, Juan, did you know this uh, David Luna Falcon gentleman? Yes, I did. I know him. I know he was a paid police informant. I know it was some kind of grunge against me and him. Yeah, that's what I read. In addition to receiving $5,000, it was known that David Falcon did not like you. Mm -hmm. In fact, several witnesses, they later testified at trial that they had overheard Falcon say that he would, quote, get you. That's right. But at this point, the police, I guess, looked you up and they must have seen that you had an armed robbery charge on your record. And I'm not going to lie to you. I had I had a prior record. And even though that had nothing to do with what happened to Mr. Dell, it's really like not out of the ordinary for a, a, that a criminal record can act as a motivator for police to f- like focus on someone. But what about these two other men, the alleged accomplices? Falcon had only said the name John. And then a friend of yours named John Berrien was arrested. So other than his friendship with you, there doesn't appear to be anything else that led them to this particular John. Now, Linda, in Florida with felony murder, the threat of the death penalty was looming over John Berrien. And he agreed to implicate Juan as well as his cousin, George Berrien. But to even have this alleged firsthand knowledge he had to implicate himself to some degree. 
he implicates himself to the extent that he says he drove George Berrien and Mr. Melendez to the studio, but he also says, I didn't know anything that was going to happen. And so John Berrien is originally charged with first degree murder and ultimately agrees to testify against Juan in exchange for a nolo contendere plea to accessory after the fact, which would immediately allow him to be released from jail and to have served any sentence that he would have with that particular charge. So John Berrien escaped the electric chair in exchange for a story in which you know he was an accessory after the fact. Now, Falcon had said Mr. Dell had allegedly thrown blood at Juan and his accomplice, but that didn't match up with John Berrien's story. It certainly didn't match up in that John Berrien said that Mr. Melendez and George Berrien left the hair salon without any blood on them. You know, there was nothing unusual about them other than then he started suggesting that they had some some jewelry and things that could have been obtained during this robbery. And then he goes on to tell another piece of the story where he says the next day or, or two days later, he gives George Berrien a ride to the train station. Mr. Melendez is again with them. And at that point, he sees Mr. Melendez give George Berrien a watch and some rings and tell him to take them to Delaware and to pawn those and obtain money for them. And the law enforcement did find out that Mr. Berrien, George Berrien, did in fact purchase a ticket to go to Delaware within a day or two after the Baker homicide. Um, So John Berrien's story did have some pieces that the law enforcement believed could corroborate what he was saying. It actually only corroborated that George Berrien's children lived in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, George Berrien, he later testified that he'd only met Juan once at John Berrien's house and denied any involvement in Mr. Dell's murder or this alleged train station jewelry handoff. And ultimately, George Berrien was never charged with anything. But the police continued with these two conflicting statements from Falcon and John Berrien that did match up on the one detail that they needed, that Juan was involved. And so they found out that you were in Pennsylvania working in the fruit orchards, which was misconstrued as as fleeing. Had you like ever heard that this, you know, murder had even taken place? Never heard about. So you were completely unaware that you were a suspect, you know, let alone about to be arrested. And I never forget this day, May the 2nd, 1994. While we was working, it was by eight police cars, and they stopped in front of us, and they told us to hit the ground, putting weapon at us. Then they ordered me to get up. Then they said, you are under arrest for first-degree murder and armed robbery in the state of Florida. You were then extradited back to Florida. And at the time, I understand, you could not even speak that much English. The truth is, I knew at that time, if I say five words in English, Believe me, my friends, three of them would be cuss words. So they brought an interpreter to explain to me what extradition means. And all he told me in Spanish was, you either wave it or fight it. They can take you back anyway. I started thinking, I'm not a killer. My mama did not raise no killers. I'm going to wave it. As soon as they see this ugly face in Florida, they will let me go. But I was wrong. When I go back, they took me in front of the judge, and the judge, he read the charges to me. He said, you've been indicted for first-degree murder and armed robbery, and the state of Florida is sinking the death penalty against you. The electric chair. 
This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,600 lawyers across 44 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for death penalty representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be because a more just world only happens by design. So meanwhile, in that same month, from what I've read, it appears that in order to ensure that your prosecution went smoothly, the lead detective, Gary Glisson, chose to go to these extraordinary lengths to protect the initial informant in this case, David Falcon, from himself, from from damaging his own credibility. When Falcon committed a home invasion in, I believe it was in May of 1984, Glisson went to the victims of that home invasion and put pressure on them not to prosecute. According to one of those victims, the woman who had been at the house, um, she was told that if we arrest Falcon, all that's going to happen is he's going to make bail and he's going to come back and he's going to harm you. And so rather than protecting her, they were basically telling her the only way she could protect herself was to waive prosecution and then they would sort of tell Falcon to back off. Which seems, you know, completely antithetical to his duty as a police officer. Uh, He chose to protect the credibility of the state's dubious star witness, David Falcon, instead of Falcon's victims, both, you know, past and future. So did Hardy Pickard, did he know about this home invasion cover-up? His response to that was to tell Detective Glisson and others to stop using Falcon for the time being as your informant because he didn't want to have any more of these types of issues occur before the trial. So he was willing to accept Falcon's word, you know, just this once, though. So Juan's court-appointed attorney, Roger Alcott, did not have the benefit of this impeachment evidence. And now there's just four months to prepare for a death penalty trial. Mr. Alcott and his trial investigator, Cody Smith, they started to follow up on some of the leads that law enforcement didn't find fruitful when they were following up on things. And Mr. Elcott sent his investigator to speak to Vernon James. And ultimately, Mr. Elcott lists Mr. James as a witness for the defense. And he tells the state that Mr. James is going to come in and say that he committed the murder or that he was there and that Mr. Melendez was not there. My attorney used to pat me in the back. He say. No, what about it, Mr. Melendez? You going home. And as as you go home, I did not commit the crime. You know, perhaps Pickard should have looked at this evidence, the Vernon James interview, as well as the home invasion cover-up for a star witness, and just let you go home. But instead, Falcon and James were free to commit more crimes while Juan's prosecution went on as scheduled. And that happened in September 1984. The state had what we now know to be the false, incentivized, or coerced testimonies of David Luna Falcon and John Berrien. To recap this, Falcon alleged that you had bragged that a man named John dropped you and another man off at Delbert Baker's salon. 
Baker's throat had been slashed. According to Falcon, Mr. Dell got blood on you. He begged you for help, but you shot him. Then John Berrien corroborated Falcon's allegation that he had dropped you and his cousin, George Berrien, at the salon. But Berrien, you know, in contrast to Falcon, when he picked you up, neither of you were covered in blood. So your attorney pointed out that inconsistency, which implies that at least, you know, one of them was lying or mistaken. And then Alcott put George Berrien on the stand. George Berrien testified, he said that I only met one once, and my cousin is a pathological liar. In other words, he lies all the time. So Mr. Alcott had put together an alibi defense with several witnesses, Mr. Melendez's girlfriend and her family, and they had been together that evening. And then in addition to that, though, Mr. Alcott had Vernon James to undermine the credibility of John Berrien and David Luna Falcon. Right. But what, what happened when Vernon James is called to the stand? He takes the Fifth Amendment. And it's an interesting sort of legal maneuver that the state makes because they tell trial counsel just a few days before the trial that Vernon James has made some statements that he committed the crime to his cellmate named Roger Mims. And so at that point, they say Vernon James needs to be advised of his rights because there's this other individual pointing to him as the person who committed the crime. So had they not had Roger Mims and Mr. Alcott just put James on the stand, he could have extracted the information that he wanted to extract without having this weird Fifth Amendment issue be raised and James essentially being able to absent himself from the trial and not have to confess in front of the jury. And then sort of the dominoes fall because then after Mims testifies, the state undermines his credibility by saying, oh, isn't this fortunate? You come forward a week before the trial and suddenly, you know, this guy supposedly confesses to you. But unlike so many other police or jailhouse informants, Roger Mims wasn't testifying in exchange for anything. He said that Vernon James had said that he and Delbert Baker were lovers and that he was involved in his death. But since James had pleaded the fifth and he was a defense witness, Alcott could not offer the recordings or transcripts of the conversations with Vernon James. So the jury only heard this from Mims. Clearly, they they were not finding Mr. Mims credible because of this sort of, he's so late to the game. And it was a really effective way to make sure that the jury didn't hear a confession from the actual, the person who was actually saying that he had committed the crime. So it appears that, you know, without Vernon James, and despite witnesses that testified to Falcon's grudge against you, Falcon had not been sufficiently impeached. So Juan, I understand you decided to take the stand in your own defense. Probably the worst mistake I made in my life. And, I, and it was against my attorney. He told me, Juan, if you take the stand, prior records will come. But I said, Alka. I did not do this. I want the juries to know from my mouth that I didn't commit this crime. Since I didn't do it, everything that I got come to me is going to be no. Did you ever been down in Mr. Delbert place? No. Did you know Mr. Delbert? No. All right. But what did the prosecutor ask on cross? He say, did you commit an armed robbery before? Yes, I had. Did you ever carry a gun before? Yes, I had. But that don't mean that I killed Mr. Delbert. 
you know, certainly having a prior conviction for robbery, having having been in possession of a firearm, those types of things certainly hurt him. The truth is, I got real scared and I felt that I was in trouble when I was in trial and they showed the bloody crime scene photographs. And when the jury saw that crime scene, them pictures, they looked straight to me and I can see that hate in the eyes. And I know right then and then that I was in some big, big trouble. After Mr. Melendez was exonerated and some of the jurors were spoken to, you realize that there were some considerations in that jury room that don't appear in the transcript. Seeing those horrific pictures, looking at Juan, uh, he doesn't look like them, he doesn't speak their language, has a two-foot-high Afro, and all of his witnesses are people of color. Mm. Someone specifically pointed out Juan's Afro and how that influenced their verdict. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point, Linda. And I think if you look at the history of Polk County, I mean, one year after this trial, they elect a known white supremacist as sheriff, Dan Daniels. This was a big problem in Polk County. So you finished the trial. Do you remember when you heard that verdict? Ay, amigo, that was, that was something that I'm very, very, very angry at the, at the whole world. But at the same time, I was scared. I said, man, these people can kill me. And then I go back in the cell. I'm talking to, uh, to all the dudes out there. And then they start telling me, well, when one with the death penalty, you might get publicity and, and you can show you innocent and get out of there. Amigo, I will not give that advice to nobody. <laughs> some, some prison lawyers for you. <laughs> so after the verdict, you come out, you address the jury. I did make the jurors angry because I literally called them racist right there. And Amigo, they've gone in there to both for life and death. That is like making angry a person that cook for you. <laughs> he, can, he can put some poison in the food. You understand what I'm saying? So I should never say what I say, as I told the jurors say. I know the reason why you people found me guilty. Because all my witnesses were black. But I'll be back because I'm innocent. In the name of Jesus, I'll be back. I was playing with my life. Let's put it like that. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was the worst day in my life. I never forget the day. It was on a Tuesday, November the 2nd, 1984. I got in there. The next Thursday, they executed the 10th person. Now, I'm super scared. I do not know the language that well. I do not know the process. I do not know anything about law. So I'm thinking, they're killing people here every week. How long is it going to be before they take me? The first 10, 10 years, right, it was very rough. I'm telling you, my amigo, a lot of people had hanged themselves in there while I was in there. So uh, when my friend named Sammy Rivera, he, he, just, he just hanged himself. And that hit me real, real, real bad, amigo. You be thinking, if he can do it, I can do it. So I'm going to tell you how they do it, exactly how they do it. The guy what they call a runner. A runner is an enemy. He do, he's doing time in prison population, but he's not sentenced to death. They get him out of there so he can do the work from the death row place. He's the one that supplies us with the toothpaste, the toothbrush, the map and the broom so you can clean yourself. But he also can supply you with a tool that you can take your life with. And he knows it. All you got to do is give him four post stamps or a pack of cigarette and rolling paper tobacco, the cheap kind, and he will give you this tool. Maybe he do it because he need these items, or maybe he do it because he called himself assisting you, helping you. He knows you went out of there. He knows that the road is hell. The tool is real simple. It's a garbage plastic bag. You give him four stamps, and when the guard is looking, he will swing that bag inside the cell. You take that bag, you twist it up, you make a rope, put a noose in it, put the noose in your neck, throw yourself down, you're dead, but you're free. And this is what the demons used to tell me. Why? Why, you know, why you got to go through all of this? You're supposed to be a Puerto Rican man, a real macho man. Don't satisfy them. Satisfy yourself. You say you didn't do it. So now, I want to take this trip. So I tell that runner, to give me that garbage bag. I give him four stamps, and when the guy won't look, he swing the bag inside myself. I twist it, made the rope, put the noose, put the noose in the rope, and I say to myself, I better lay down and think about this a little bit more. When I lay down, my amigo, almost immediately, I fell in a deep, deep sleep. And then I start dreaming that I'm a little kid again. I was raised in the island of Puerto Rico. So here I am, dreaming that I'm swimming in the beautiful Caribbean Sea. And believe me, my friend, the water is warm. The sun was so bright. The sky was so blue. And the palm trees looked so good. It's a beautiful day. Then, in this dream, I see four dolphins coming to me. A pair got in one side and a pair got in another one. Then they start flipping and jumping like dolphins too. Amigo, I'm having a ball in there. Then I look to the shore and it's a beautiful lady waving at me, throwing kisses at me. 
And she seems so happy. She's happy because I'm happy. That's my mother. Then I wake up. And that was one of the most beautiful dreams in my life. And right today, if I'm depressed or I get kind of angry about something, I start thinking about the dream and, psh, and let's go away. And every time I got kind of depressed and every time I think that, that the world's going to end up on me, the creator sent me a beautiful dream. And I was wise to grab them as a sign of hope that everything is going to be all right. Wow. I don't even know what to say other than to you know, recognize that eventually everything was all right. And and even though it took a long while, long enough for you to learn English from your fellow inmates, we're all so grateful that you decided to fight your case. Linda, can you tell us a little bit about the fight that was ahead of him? In Florida at the time when Mr. Melendez arrived on death row, there was no state-funded defense system. It was all run through volunteers. And so there were tended to be delays in getting people attorneys. And if there were delays in starting the process, there were going to be delays in executing people. So that seemed to be a big motivator for the Florida legislature to actually fund an agency to represent people like Mr. Melendez. And that agency was called the uh, Office of the Capital Collateral Representative, where you eventually worked. Now, given what we know about the evidence in this case, can you give me some kind of idea about why they were able to deny his appeals? Sure. So the attorneys at that time did what they believed they needed to do. They requested records. They spoke to the trial attorney. They put together what's called a 3850 motion, which is a motion to vacate. And at that time, they had some fairly good information. They certainly did indicate that Vernon James was a suspect in the crime, but they didn't have anything all that different or new from what was presented at the trial through Roger Mims. So that appeal ended up in a summary denial. What is also remarkable on direct appeal is that Justice Rosemary Barquette, in her dissent, believed that the death penalty should be dismissed because she thought the evidence of guilt was so weak that it shouldn't substantiate a death penalty. So I I do think that that is also really telling that when that justice reviewed his case that she, she made that comment. But unfortunately, the lack of strength in this evidence wasn't enough to make a difference. And there's another problem. Juan's appellate attorney's didn't have the recording or transcript of the trial investigator's interview with Vernon James. And he had um, passed away by then, right? He was murdered two or three years after I was in death row. You know, but it does seem that all roads still led to Vernon James. So there was more investigation done, and an evidentiary hearing was held in May of 1996. So what, what happened there? Five different witnesses testified at that evidentiary hearing, four of whom said that Vernon James had confessed to the crime. And then also John Berrien testified at that hearing and said that what he had said at trial wasn't true. All of those witnesses, other than one who was John Berrien's attorney at the time of his trial, all four of the witnesses were dismissed as being not credible. You know, this is just got to be so frustrating. I mean, it seems like an arbitrary and very subjective way to be denied, you know, especially in light of what was about to be revealed in this case. Uh, Linda, you're now working Juan's case along with Martin McLean, who you later opened to practice with. And in 2000, you were preparing for a federal habeas when there was a pretty significant discovery made. 
we decided we were going to just start talking to witnesses again. And one of those individuals was the trial investigator, Cody Smith. And we also wanted to speak to Mr. Alcott, who at that time was a judge. And so we contacted Judge Alcott. And it was during that conversation where he said that he may have some files that had not been disclosed previously to counsel. And so Judge Alcott allowed Cody Smith to go to his storage center. And lo and behold, within that storage center surfaced four tapes, sort of those old cassette tapes, and a paper copy of a transcript of an interview with Vernon James back in 1984. And Mr. James had stated that he was present at the time Mr. Baker was killed. And it was two other individuals that had actually done the killing and the robbery. And Mr. Melendez was not one of those people. So we started really taking from that information, a whole new investigation about Vernon James. Right. And that led you to Marty Lake, the man who had been convicted of killing Vernon James, which then, of course, led you to five more witnesses two of whom saw Mr. James on the night of the murder at a motel, the Scottish Inn in Auburndale, and one of whom saw Vernon James almost immediately after the murder and said he was covered in blood. And she helped him find clothes he could wear, took him over to the motel, and to both her and another individual, he confessed that he had been involved in the murder of Mr. Baker. Ultimately, what we found out was that Not only did Vernon James confess to multiple individuals with whom he was friends, related to, dating, things like that, he also confessed to several people in law enforcement, including the state attorney investigator who had seen him the week before Mr. Melendez's trial, and he had actually told him that he had been there when the murder was committed. So it's hard to imagine a world in which Hardy Pickard didn't know this while he was trying to send Juan to death row or while he fought to keep him there. I mean, he didn't retire until 2009. Well, Hardy Pickard had remained with the case throughout all of the post-conviction proceedings. So he was present at the second post-conviction proceeding when John Barian testified and the various witnesses. And ultimately, what he testified to at our proceeding in 2001 was that he had had a copy of the statement at the time of that hearing, and he did not reveal that to the court, and he did not reveal that to defense counsel. Right. So he was admonished by that, by by the judge later on. Um, And he also said something that, you know, David Luna Falcon had nothing to gain by his testimony when that wasn't true either, right? Correct. You know, it became clear that he had been working with law enforcement. They were using him quite extensively in drug transactions. He was paid for his testimony. He had a grudge against Juan. And Mr. Pickard had made it seem at the trial like if he was getting paid, it wasn't a significant amount. And the the fact that they protected Falcon in relation to his criminal conduct, you know, it just kept coming out in little, little pieces. But by the end of this, it was very clear that Falcon was not a credible witness. He had quite a lot of motive to be involved in this case and to testify against Mr. Melendez. Yeah. And, and really there's like zero accountability for this, obviously. I mean, Hardy Picard went, went on to continued to prosecute people, um, still had similar problems, Brady violations that he was dealing with in in later cases. Um, And yet there's never anything done about these prosecutors. I mean, as as Judge Fleischer, who was the judge at our hearing, found there was quite a bit of evidence that was suppressed, but there was also rules that were violated, discovery rules, cases that were 
clear black letter law that Mr. Pickard was calling in witnesses into his office, taking sworn statements from individuals, and then not disclosing his notes, even though those notes may have had exculpatory information, they may have had impeachment evidence in them, which Judge Fleischer found. And so when I, when I look at Judge Fleischer's order, it's clear to me that there's more going on here than just an inadvertent, I forgot to you know disclose a particular piece of documentation. It just seemed like even from the way that Mims, Roger Mims surfaces on the eve of the trial, there was just a pattern of behavior that was designed to me to win this case rather than to see that justice was done here. But the good news is that eventually justice was done. On December 5th, 2001, Judge Barbara Fleischer vacated Juan's conviction and granted a new trial. And then the state decided to drop the charges. They took the handcuffs off of me, the chains off my foot. They offered me soda and they offered me a hamburger. I don't want no hamburger, mi amigo. I just want to go back to my cell, pack everything up and get the hell out of here. That's what I told him. So I want to say bye to my friend. His name is Clarence Hill. So I got tears that's running down. I got a smile. He's smiling at me. He said, don't forget about us. And now I'm going to lie, amigo, I hear, I hear a clap, then I hear another clap. And then they start bagging the bars and whistling. The guards got angry, told them to shut up, to be quiet. They didn't stop when I got out of there. They was real happy to see me go. Juan, I just want to talk about, you know, what's life like for you now? Like, how is this whole experience, because it had to have been life affecting, how has it changed your life? Well, my amigo, I feel right today that my time that I spent in their role, all the suffering and pain, it was not for nothing. It's a purpose for it. And I still got the strength to go around and, and speak against the death penalty. And the reason I do it is because what happened to me, I don't want it to happen to nobody else. We don't need a law like that. We know better. We can do better. We don't need the death penalty. 100%. Can you just talk about like where listeners can go who care about wrongful conviction, who care about the death penalty to support these kind of causes? Are there any places that you recommend? Organizations like Witness to Innocent, uh, uh, any, any type of little organization, they need help, it's good to help. But the main thing is to talk to legislators, teach people to talk to the legislators, the lawmakers. They're the ones that can change this thing. Well, we'll have Witness to Innocent linked in the bio. And now we've come to the portion of the show called Closing Arguments, where I first thank you both for joining us today. And now I'm just going to ask you for your final thoughts. So let's start with you, Linda, and we'll close it out with Juan today. Well, I would just say that I think that generally people should understand that there can be things that happen in the criminal justice system that need to be fixed or repaired. Those things do happen, and we have to take steps to fix them and not feel so sort of entrenched in the injustice that we can't say that that was wrong or this mistake was made. Because I, I do think that, unfortunately, as an example in Juan's case, that may have been part of the reason why no one wanted to say that there was a problem here. So I would just ask people to keep that perspective that mistakes do happen and you have to be open-minded enough and we have to have the law be flexible enough to fix those mistakes. First of all, I want to thank all of you for doing this. And I want to thank for inviting Linda to do it. 
I go around and speaking about against the penalty because, like I said before, I don't want this to happen to nobody. I also want people to to understand that when they execute someone, they're not executing the same person that committed the crime. They're securing somebody else. I learned this when I was in, in their role because I've been with them and I saw how they change. And believe me, mi amigo, people do change. I've seen it. It changed for the good. They got some people in there that I'm not going to say, let them out. It's some people in there that committed some horrible, horrible crime that you cannot forget the victims, the family. But you don't have to kill them. The same people that I'm talking about that did commit this crime can also become mentors because they can teach others not to become like they was. They can teach the ones that we know we got to let them go to become a better man in the outside. The death penalty, like they say in Puerto Rico, no vale la pena. It's just a waste. Don't bring nothing. There's more pain, more collateral damage all over. And one of the worst things for me when, when I was in their role is when they execute someone. I'm in this cell. Next to me is another person that I know for 10 or 15 years. He cries in my shoulder. I cries in his. He shared with me his most intimate thoughts. I share mine with him. And one day they snatch him over there. And I know exactly what's going to happen. And my time was the electric chair. They killed 42 before I left. They got to generate the chair with electricity because it's 2010 volts they got to go to the body in order to get him killed. So we can hear the nosy sound. Uh, uh. And we know precisely the time when they kill him because the light bulbs... They go off and off. It's no movie. They do go off and off because all that power got to go in that chair. And now I'm telling you, my amigo, when that happened, nobody said nothing. It's just like a sign, like going to a, like you going to by yourself in a cemetery. That's the only time it get quiet in there when it, when when that happened. The death penalty is racist. It don't deter crime. It's cruel and unnecessary. It costs too much. But the most important thing that people need to learn is this. Any state that have it, any country that have it, it always will be a risk to execute an innocent one. We always can release an innocent man from prison, but you cannot, and I repeat, you can never release an innocent man from the grave. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Gilbert King. I'd like to thank executive producers Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis for inviting me to be here. I'd also like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production comes from three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me on Twitter at Gilbert underscore King, and you can listen to my podcast Bone Valley from Lava for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, 
Oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.